do more of this. This is the way. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Stessler. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Mike Madrid, thanks for uh, taking a brief break from your uh, sequester to write the book. How's that going, by the way? It's going well. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's been a little while, but yeah, it's as, it's as rough as they say. Working on a book is uh, it's a real thing. So kudos to all those writers out there. I've got a new appreciation for what you're doing. <laughs> and making her roundup debut, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. Mission to the U.N., She has also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC. Hagar, thanks for being here in person. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. It's great to be here in person. On this week's Roundup, we're going to talk about the continuing scandal. More classified documents have been found at Joe Biden's home after an FBI search. And now former Vice President Mike Pence reveals that he had classified documents as well. Then we'll discuss Congressman Ruben Gallego's announcement that he's running for the Arizona Senate seat in 2024 why that ad was so powerful. Next up, we'll dive into one of the most unusual and closely watched elections in 2023, the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, and how the candidates have given up any pretense of judicial neutrality. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss a Politico magazine piece about a new plan to get conservative voters to respond to climate messaging. Spoiler alert, it's about advancing the messaging from people who aren't liberal. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can listen to in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate over to the Politicology show and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. Okay, so last Friday, the FBI searched President Joe Biden's Delaware home and discovered more classified material. Biden's attorneys have argued that the search underscores the president's commitment to cooperation with the investigation, but FBI officers searching the home of a sitting president is definitely out of the ordinary to say the least. This marks the fifth time that classified materials have been found in either Biden's home or his former office at the Penn-Biden Center. Several high-profile Democrats in the Senate have now commented on the scandal. Majority Whip Dick Durbin said that it, quote, diminishes the stature of any person who's in possession of classified documents. Former Vice Presidential nominee Tim Kaine highlighted the need for an independent investigation on CBS's Face the Nation to discover things like how many documents there were, the seriousness and level of classification, who had access, why were they taken. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin called it totally irresponsible. And just for good measure, I want to flash back to what Biden had to say about classified documents to CBS's 60 Minutes back in September, which was less than two months before the White House learned of the original trove of documents he had retained from his time as vice president. Here's that clip. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago. What did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. Hagar, this is looking 
more and more like your Instagram post from the other day. <laughs> and we're going to start finding classified documents behind the body wash in the president's shower. Uh, so why don't you lead off here? What was your reaction to this continued sort of drip, drip, drip of the, of the story? Where do we begin? Um, you know, as someone who worked in government for 12 years, the whole time working with classified material, the thing that stunned me the most was that I don't understand how somebody walks out with paper. I had numerous jobs in government. I don't remember at any time taking paper with me unless maybe it was a list of contacts that that I had collected and printed out because I wasn't good at technology at that at that phase. But actually carrying any kind of paper made no sense to me. Now, as a rule, is it is it feasible? Sure. You could have left intelligence on your desk. Normally, if you have intelligence on your desk for some reason, by the end of the day, you should be burning it or storing it or putting it in a shredder bag or whatever it might be. It needs to go into a secure facility. And we're trained with that so repeatedly and so heavily. And we're really scared shitless into breaking, you know, into not breaking that rule that it's, to me, the first thing I thought was, well, first of all, why were these lingering on your desk or wherever they were? And who's shoving them into a box thinking without even checking? So I, you know, I, I, I don't think that the intent was malicious and intent plays a large role in this. But that being said, had this been anybody, anyone else, if it were me as a staffer taking this inadvertently, it would have been a a major security violation. Uh, There would have been some kind of repercussion. I would have had to been retrained again. Maybe my security clearance would have been revoked or at least temporarily revoked. And and, and, and I don't want to sound ageist about this. I really just don't understand taking boxes and boxes unless you're what are you trying to do with these papers? You're trying to write a book, probably. Why else would you do that? Um, I saw the latest news saying that the FBI needs to look into 1,850 boxes between, and that's collecting everything from the Senate years and years as the vice president. And I'm thinking to myself- Just Biden's documents? Yeah. Well, that's oh. what it said. <laughs> I was thinking, but 1,850 boxes. Did you go print everything, <laughs> put it in a box and take it with you? So l- that's the first thing that I remarked. And then as a former PR person, and you spoke about this with Susan on the last roundup, I, as and former spokesperson, all I felt was the frustration of a spokesperson not being given all the information from the beginning, because from a PR standpoint, this was a disaster. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, one of the, one of the questions I, I think a lot of people have on their minds is, just how easy is it to just walk away with classified documents? And the answer, we, we probably should have a much broader conversation about overclassification. We probably should have a much broader conversation about the processes in place to make sure this doesn't happen. But my understanding is that it's not easy to take classified documents unless perhaps you're a very powerful person, right? And so this this sort of sets up a, a, the juxtaposition of how serious incidents like these are treated with, you know, um, among lower level staff, uh, as opposed to people who are in the highest, you know, ranks of power. It almost feels like the higher up you are, the more difficult it is to hold you accountable for stuff like this. Whereas, you know, punishment would be swift and furious if you were, you know, a mid-level staffer who was caught with classified documents in your home and didn't give them back. That would probably be uh, handled in a different way, right? And so... The idea that it's in your home, you would be... 100%. They would escort you out of the building to do an investigation. They would escort you. They would put you on some kind of leave while they conduct an investigation. I've seen this happen before. Certainly if it's in your home. Usually I saw situations like that when it was just left on someone's desk overnight or when it was left when something that was secret or higher was left in a printer. So the rules on, on maintaining, on carrying these types of classified materials, the rules are very strict. You are trained repeatedly throughout the year. Even if you already know the rules, they keep telling you about them. And there isn't always a way to monitor them. I mean, if you're printing it and you have a meeting in another building, you carry it in a secure pouch that has a key. And But again, yes, that is the honor system. No one really knows if you're printing it out and right there's or taking a picture of it with your phone. <laughs> right. Technically, no, right. They have to, they just have to make sure they have to trust you. Yeah. But that's what the security clearance process is for, right. to make sure that they can trust you in this in handling these documents. 
But again, that's why the idea, when I think of my bosses, and when I worked at the, at the White House, for example, the desks of our senior officials were always super clean. And that is because they had senior advisors and assistants to make sure that that classified material was, was shredded, burned, placed in a secure facility or a safe. And that's why I just don't understand. It's, I really find it hard to wrap my mind around Wait, was this January 20th and you hadn't packed and you just shoved everything in a <laughs> well, box? That, yeah, yeah. And that that is, I mean, the, tr- the the chaos of a transition probably plays into this. And and uh, and to your point, you know, I, we, we don't have any reason yet to believe that any of this was malicious. Um, but, uh, and so, you know, one could imagine in the, in the haste to vacate your office on the same day as somebody else is moving in that things can get lost in the shuffle, but not this many things, this many times, it seems to defy sort of credibility. So Mike, there is, God, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, when this, when we first covered the story, um, I thought, wow, shit, this has got to change their, their announcement plans for his reelect. This is going to like, this certainly should impact, uh, the way the Biden team inside and outside the White House is thinking about the, the, the re-election campaign, the State of the Union, when he announces. I wonder how you've been reading the, you know, what, what you expect the political consequences of this to be, how important or unimportant the distinctions between Trump's and Biden's document scandals are going to be to voters, right? We know that there are plenty of legal distinctions here. Um, Hagar raised the point of intent. Uh, we know that demonstrating intent is part of the, um, you know, would be essential to, you know, criminal charges uh, here. We, 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 have, we have a lot of reason to believe that Trump intended to keep documents that didn't belong to him, as opposed to uh, the contrast between, between him and, and, and Biden's behavior. And now we have revelations that there were also documents found at, um, at Pence's Indiana home last week that are beginning to shape this. So, so to me, it kind of feels like the, the, uh, the overarching theme of classified document, powerful people having classified documents they shouldn't is sort of saturated now in a voter's mind. And it's all sort of starting to blend together where they're all bad. They all take documents they shouldn't have. How the fuck are they getting away with this? And, uh, and is there, there going to be any room for distinction here politically? We know the lawyers are going to have a difficult time um, uh, in, in all of these cases, but I wonder how you, how you read this from a political perspective. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I find it mildly ironic, but uh, makes a whole lot of sense when you understand the players that the one person who d- did not have classified documents was was Barack Obama, <laughs> right? The, the black man. The black man was like legit, like operating above board, of course. And, and, and you know, <laughs> come hell or high water, if, if there is something found in his residence, then people are going to really get pissed. It's going to be like, well, wait a second. Like, right, what, what's, going, what's going on here? What's really behind this? Politically, this is not going to uh, bode well for the Democrats, but I, I also think that the big winner in all this scenario is probably Donald Trump because at least in the theater of politics, in the political arena, the waters have been muddied considerably. You now have credible news sources saying that you know the Democrats, Joe Biden, also had documents. Obviously, we're seeing Pence's stuff come out now, too. The question has moved away from the nefarious Donald Trump and what he was doing to how do they all have access to it? Do they all do it? Which is part of Donald Trump's messaging anyway, right? It's like, why haven't you paid taxes? It's because none, no rich people pay taxes. This is what we do. This is how we game the system. That's part of Donald Trump's superpower. Uh, I, I think honestly, the big loser here is probably DeSantis because how does he attack when this opening is there and he 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 misses the opportunity to kind of go after Trump when it was such a soft target? Um, I don't think that that's really a possibility anymore. But as I said, I think it's really important to understand: is this going to be determinative in the outcome of the presidential campaign or even a primary? No, not at all. I don't think it makes one iota of difference. And I've said this. You know, since we've known each other, Ron, and certainly saying this on the 2020 race, if you look at presidential contests since at least the 2000 race, the data is very clear on the number of undecideds that are actually movable, and they are they are incredibly, incredibly small numbers. So, as intense as this gets, and that's really what this this issue is going to do, it's going to deepen the intensity on both sides. Okay, if you if you're a Democrat, you're going to be like, oh, well, Joe Biden probably wasn't doing anything wrong. 
It was probably an honest mistake. He was probably just working hard into the night. It's the same thing that Donald Trump's people are doing. And conversely, to the other side, you're going to be like, Joe Biden was probably selling nuclear secrets through Hunter Biden's, you know, false Chinese corporation to, to do whatever, you know, whatever crazy right wing site is is putting out false rumors and stories on. And 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 the, and the Democrats will be doing the same thing about Trump. I'm not saying that either one is true or they're not. I'm not trying to make a false equivalency. I'm trying to explain how the political industrial complex, uh, the machinery of it, starts to develop a narrative. Uh, so so there's no one is going to be persuaded one way or the other on this issue. I really don't believe that. Uh, plus, we're so far away from, from how this is ultimately going to play out. But what it is going to do, it's going to deepen the intensities. It's going to significantly heighten uh, people's partisan foxholes. And that helps the Donald Trump in this situation. It elevates him. It starts to solidify his base with this rally around the flag effect in, with, uh, amongst Republicans. Who you know are looking to DeSantis for this opening? Now they're going to be like, well, maybe Donald Trump was just doing what everybody else was doing, and this is part of this false narrative that is put out there. So I think that's the most likely dynamic. But in terms of a general election contest, I don't think it makes one hill of beans difference. Okay, so it doesn't impact whether he should run. Does it impact for you the timing of the announcement, the the closeness of it to the State of the Union, and whether or not he needs to take a different tack with the State of the Union? I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, look, part of part of uh, in this world, in this in this in this political environment of siloed media bubbles, uh, it is it is if we have, if anybody has learned anything from the Republicans, it's their ability to speak only to their base and the efficacy of that. The idea that you're speaking to the entire American public is a lost notion. That is not happening anymore. So the natural inclination of politicos and politicians. And professional campaign people is to be like, well, we need to kind of get out there and contain this and message it. No, you don't. You need to just double down on your base, and the Democrats have a significantly larger base mathematically. So speak to that. Speak to that group. Speak to that constituency and just keep going. Look, only Joe Biden and people closest to him know how damaging this potentially could be and and, and what those documents are that could pierce this bubble. If this is part of that determination, then that's fine. Start hedging a little bit and start making that change. But like I said, I, it, it is so difficult to unseat an incumbent under normal circumstances. But again, look at 2020. We had, we had a once-in-a-century global pandemic. We had the economy melting down entirely in the midst of a presidential campaign against a guy like Donald Trump who defended every constituency in the United States of America, and yet he only lost by 30,000 votes. That's the power of the incumbency. Okay, so 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 and and the fact that everyone's like, how did seventy million people vote for this guy? Seventy million people would vote for a dead body as opposed to voting for a Democrat, and vice versa, <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. By the way, okay, so let's yeah. remember that. Like the, the the actual marginal amount of movements amongst amongst voter segments is incredibly thin. It's incredibly thin, and this issue is not going to move them because this is not the last scandal before the election, folks. This is going to be like number 30, oh, yeah. real, oh, yeah. real or manufactured, right? That's the world that we live yeah. in. And that's why these intensities yeah. and these partisan silos are so, so calcified. They're so cemented and there's so little movement. Uh, I, I don't think it's as big a scandal as it should be, candidly, because this is a very big problem where the sitting president has classified documents sitting in the passenger seat of his Corvette. Like, that's not okay. That's not okay. Hagar, I want to zoom out just for a minute before we close this segment, um, uh, because we don't know the exact contents of the documents CNN reported. Some of the first set, like the ones from the Penn Biden Center, had briefing materials about Ukraine uh, and Iran. Uh, and uh, and so, like, I, I want to just pull back a little bit, look outside the United States. How, if at all, does a scandal like this, can a scandal like this impact our relationship with other countries, given everything that's going on in the world and the way we are involved in it? Oh, in so many ways. Well, so first, you're you're going to have countries feel apprehension in sharing their intelligence with us, possibly. I think that would probably be a little exaggerated, but you could envision a scenario where you have a source or you have a country that has intelligence that they want to share and that that source or country feels scared and might request all sorts of measures to ensure that that piece of intelligence or that source um, or, or whatever it is that they may be handing over, if it's a document or whatever it might be, is really that there are extra 
precautions taken? Because when you're, especially if you're talking about a source, something that I might identify a source, then that person's life is at risk. Maybe it's a company, that company is at risk, whatever it might be. So that's going to put people a little bit at, on edge. It's going to make them lose a little bit of trust in our system and our ability to properly handle classified documents. It really is. I can't. I can't stress enough how weird it is for someone for 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 someone to have these documents at home. It's weird for to have it out on a desk that's not in a secure facility, let alone at home in boxes, and and boxes everywhere. Right? We haven't even gotten to the fact that that how weird it is that Biden has a Corvette. We could get into that later. <laughs> I thought that was very shocking. <laughs> when, when he said- when Come he, on, he's a car guy, man. <laughs> when he came, he's supposed to be a climate guy. <laughs> you know, if it was like, if he said it was like locked to my electric vehicle, maybe I would have not paid attention. But when he came out at one point and said, but don't worry, I don't know, he didn't say the words, don't worry. But he said, you know, these were found, this was after the second drip or the third drip. And he said, these were found in- my garage, which is locked because that's where I keep my Corvette. And all I could hear was, you have a Corvette? Corvette? (laughs) You can't even ride a bike. What are you doing driving a Corvette? (laughs) So anyway, I digress. Um, As Ron knows, I like to make a lot of jokes and I like to pursue satire where I can to highlight the absurdity (laughs) in these situations. Well, I think to your point, I think this is the way a lot of people, especially younger people, are reading all of this, right? Mm -hmm. It just looks like theater of the absurd to them. Yes. So it looks like a circus. It does. But yeah. the last just to close the question that you had asked, and that's on one hand you're gonna have a little bit of lack of trust. I know I don't want to overdramatize that though. But the do, the thing that I do point out, and and this is with every scandal you see in the United States and every absurd scene or development. So when you had the election of Kevin McCarthy as speaker, when you're having now what you see going on, the insurrection. Fifteen ballots Kevin, that's what we're calling him. Yes, right. <laughs> um I, I like that. Yes. I, well, let's keep that Let's make that a thing. Um, It's that countries that, well, that do and don't have democracies, but particularly those that don't, so dictators and authoritarians around the world, are going to look at the United States as absurd, and they're going to highlight that to their people. And they're going to say over and over again, right, the Iranian leader will tell his protesters, the Russian Putin will say the same thing, President Xi of China. This offers to them its free content to support authoritarianism yeah. so that they because can tell their people. look at what people, a disaster they yes, are. Look at the chaos. Look at this disaster. Look at the lawlessness. Look at the disaster. Look, look at how they are at risk of telling, the, sharing these secrets to the world. In, in our country where it's like a police state, you don't have to worry about that. And that is a real thing. They do use this as fodder for to prop themselves up. Let's talk about my new favorite political candidate, Ruben Gallego. On Monday, uh, he's a Democratic House member, Ruben Gallego, announced that he's running for the Arizona Senate seat currently held by the Senate's newly minted independent Senator Kirsten Sinema. Uh, So normally we'd give a little bit more of an introduction, uh, but I'm going to let the congressman introduce himself here. Um, This is the audio from the ad he released announcing his campaign. It's about three and a half minutes. We're just gonna listen to the whole thing and we'll talk about this. Growing up poor, the only thing I really had was the American dream. An opportunity. It's the one thing that we give every American no matter where they are born in life. It was actually something to believe in and to fight for. The odds that a single immigrant mom with a Latino boy, statistically, I was never supposed to end up even in college. I slept on a floor in a couch in a roll-on mat. Hearing her cry like every night, being stressed out about how she was going to raise like four kids on a secretary salary, you know, with an absent father. Fue una experiencia muy dura. Time to step up and be a father figure to my three sisters. And skipping my teenage years influenced me a lot. When you're poor, you really need a belief and a hope in a better future. Rita, you want to make you one? And what helps to do that is when you have other people believe with you. My family, who didn't laugh at me when I told them I'm going to Harvard had teachers, did everything they could to make sure that it was possible. I had a government that believed in kids like me. I really did feel 
that I owed the country something, and we got sent to Iraq. Losing all my friends, consistently being shot at, and people trying to blow you up all the time. You never really fully come back from the war. You're not the same person. Fighting through PTSD. There were some very low moments in my life. But I still didn't give up hope and push forward. I found a new way to keep serving. Hey, hey, hey. You're the first group of people that are hearing this besides my family. I will be challenging Kirsten Cinema for the United States Senate, and I need all of your support. Most families feel that they are one or two paychecks away from going under. That is not the way that we should be living in this country. The rich and the powerful, they don't need more advocates. It's the people that are still trying to decide between groceries and utilities that needs a fighter for them. There is no lobbyist for working families. We could argue different ways about how to do it, but at the core, if you're more likely to be meeting with the powerful than the powerless, you're doing this job incorrectly. I'm sorry that politicians have let you down, but I'm gonna change that. I'm Ruben Gallego. I'm running to be the senator of Arizona. Because you deserve somebody fighting for you and fighting with you every day to make sure you have the same chance of sueño americano. So, Mike, when I first watched this video, uh, it popped up on my Twitter feed. I texted you and I was like, uh, watch this right now. Actual tears just came out of my eyes uh, in the middle of this ad. Um, and uh, and <laughs> on the, 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 the quote that stood out to me the most, and by the way, you should say, Gallego Senate campaign um, announced uh, that they'd raised over a million dollars in like the 24 hours after dropping this ad, including uh, like more than 27,000 donors. So clearly it has resonated immediately with a lot of people. The quote that stood out to me the most, this is when I got just immediately choked up, was when he said, if you're more likely to be meeting with the powerful than the powerless, then you're doing this job incorrectly. And, and I just, I want to talk about that for a minute. I want to talk about the positioning of this ad, but, um, I think you and I both had similar, but different, uh, sort of thoughts about why that was so effective, about why the ad was so effective. Um, so why don't you explain your reaction to that first? And then I'll, I'll explain why it was significant to me. There, there's so much I want to say about this ad because, you know, after, um, watching thousands of these ads, you, they just, you get kind of numb to them. And when you do find one that draws this emotional reaction, it really makes you stop and, and ponder kind of what, what is it? It's, it's, it's obviously great visually, but the messaging is so profound in this. And again, I'm working on a book on this right now. I haven't seen this type of Latino messaging since the George W campaign, George W Bush campaign, which I was doing independent work on in 2000. This, the, the, these guys really get it and they understand it. And I want to explain a little bit why. First of all, the tagline, the only Spanish language reference here is El Sueño Americano, the American dream, which was literally the same thematic George W. Bush used when we framed the convention in Philadelphia back in 2000. And the reason why that's important is because it's an aspirational message of people who are in poverty trying to lift themselves up. That speaks directly to this emerging demographic. It's what Democrats have forgotten. And, and, and there's so much about this that I think is just done brilliantly. All of the messaging, all of the narrative that Gallego's life brings out is essentially this, this uh, pulling himself up by his bootstraps with one caveat. And he says this very clearly after he talks about his own uh, need to survive and get out of poverty, his own driving force of his family, the support of the people around him. He references the teachers that gave him support. And then he says something very important, and a government that believes in me. 
But notice that the entirety of the government institution that he legitimizes and gives credence to is the United States military. This is, and also notice that the the, the setup language to the to the language that got you the, the, about the powerful and the powerless, which is is biblical language, right? But but the the setup to that was we can debate on how to do that. That that's immediately pulling down the walls of partisanship and saying it doesn't matter to me, right or left. I'm not bringing an ideology to this. What I'm saying is if you're talking to the powerful instead of the powerless, an, an, an inherently populist message, which is a bullseye with the Latino demographic. As I said, this Latino vote, what is happening nationally is the emergence of an aspirational, blue-collar, non-college-educated, working-class community where a young man who lives and sleeps on the couch because his three sisters and his mom have to share a bed in a one-bedroom apartment is not an uncommon story. That story of poverty, and he talks about it and uses the words poor because that scars you for life. It frames your entire perspective on your life. And the fact that he is committed not only to succeeding for himself, but more for them and becoming something for the community, so much so that he goes, you know, he serves in both at, 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 in the United States military as a grunt, by the way, in one of the in one of the um, platoons that lost the most men in the Iraq War. Yeah, twenty three yeah. of his of his fellow soldiers died, did not come back. Like, th- there's some amazing footage I think that's going to be coming out of this campaign because that war there was so much footage. So there, there's there's actual war footage of of him on the ground, I think, in Fallujah. But anyway, I I mean I could keep going on and on about this because this is this is good this is artwork this is a really it good is. ad, uh, uh, not just the visuals it's it's the messaging is just so dead on it's not speaking to 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 the traditional democratic oppression and we can't do this unless we grievance it's not grievance it's not loaded with it's grievance. not so elizabeth warren bernie sanders the system is rigged and you can't do it especially as brown people unless we do this for you like that's the democratic party's mantra this is the exact opposite this is saying i understand the source of the alienation you feel of the barriers against you and i'm not going to tell you that this government is against you he does not say that anywhere this is in many ways this is a republican message the only time he gives a hat tip to government is to say there's a government that was supporting me he's not blaming anybody he's saying against incredible odds I've made it. I know your struggle. I see what you're dealing with. We can get there. I got there as long as people believe in you and I believe in you. And that's when he says, I'm sorry that other politicians let you down. I won't let you down. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a masterpiece in messaging. It's just brilliantly done. And I don't say that about political ads anymore, by the way, I haven't said that for 15, 20 years. Exactly. And, and, and like normally under ordinary circumstances, I would not air from start to finish a three and a half minute political ad for a, for, for a Senate candidate on the, on the show. But it, but I, but, but I am sort of desperate to hold it up as an example of do more of this. This is the way. And when he says, if you're, if you're more likely to be meeting with the powerful than the powerless, you're doing this job incorrectly. By the way, the backdrop of that was Kirsten Cinema at Davos. So everyone should understand the timing and the context of this ad. But that idea is something that not only is going to resonate with working class Latinos, as you articulated, but I heard it as something that will resonate deeply with, with, with poor white evangelicals as well, all over the West, all over the Southwest. And, yeah. and I think that's a, it's a Republican ad. Yeah. It's a Republican yeah. ad. And, and, and Republican also, by ad. the way, that is that, that, yeah. that, that idea, right. That Jesus was actually an anti-imperial guy, right. Who, who's trying to, it was a populist. And a populist. he said, by the way, I'm telling you all of these yeah. things, uh, uh, that, that the military, the industrial complex, the, like the, the powerful people, they're not going to like very much. And by the way, they're probably going to kill me for it. And hey, guess what? That's, and then they did, right? 
this is this is this is the Jesus story that many evangelicals will be familiar with, even though Christianity seems to have lost the plot, especially during the Trump years. This is something that will remind them of the roots of the faith. And that's why I felt it so powerfully. So um yeah, I think that I think this has I think this is powerful beyond uh just the Latino context, but it but across class lines uh in in general and um i think it's i think it's brilliant i think it's heartfelt um and i hope that we see more of it i hope that we see more democratic messaging like this hagar what did you what do you think about all of this you know it first from a comms perspective it takes real skill to make any kind of statement or ad or speech that speaks to everyone for different reasons. Just the way that now, Mike, you and and you've been saying how you heard it. I heard it as a daughter of immigrants. My dad is the definition of the American dream. And tell everybody, you are Lebanese American? Yes, I'm Lebanese American. I'm born here outside New York City in Greenwich, Connecticut. And my parents fled the Civil War in, uh, in Lebanon. They toured the world and settled in Greenwich, Connecticut. And listen, I, I was raised, I had a privileged life growing up. But my uh, dad came, opened his business here. It completely failed. And... He took a small loan two years later. He wanted to stay in the United States. He loved New York. He took a very small loan and then built a very great and successful company and gave my brother and me everything we could ever want. And every day he told me how lucky I was to be American, how lucky I was to be born here, that I could do whatever I want to do and say whatever I want to say and be whomever I wanted to be. And I have no doubt that that's what fueled my desire to go into public service and to feel very strongly about my country. And I hate that the word patriotism or patriot has been hijacked by far-right extremists, frankly, because I feel as I am a patriot and and my dad is a patriot and raised me to be that way, to be very proud. And that's what I saw in this ad was, I was like, I feel you. I didn't grow, I didn't grow up with the experiences he did at all, but it spoke to me on that on that level. And it also spoke to me the exact line you mentioned about not hanging out with the powerful and hanging out or, or speaking to and, and meeting with and reaching out to the powerless. This is exactly what fueled in in many ways, and this is a separate conversation, what fueled Donald Trump's rise to power. Was this hatred of the establishment, the hatred of these elites, the hatred of corruption, the hatred of Washington being out of touch with the rest of the United States. Democrats did a terrible job um, in reaching out to Americans and potential voters across the nation. I mean, there are numerous examples of this. And so I thought that The Hillary 2016 campaign in the Rust Belt is one of them. That's exactly what I was thinking of. I was thinking of Appalachia. And this ad spoke to me in that way too. I thought it was brilliant. And it also brought tears to my eyes, by the way. Yeah. Mike, do you want to briefly explain why um, the, the, the party, how do you put it? The party that assembles a, a sustainable, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition is the party that will dominate politics. You want to explain why, why this messaging gets to that, that sort of political reality? Yeah. So uh, demographically, I mean, with, with the transformation that the country is undergoing, uh, the party that's able, able to capture the hearts and minds of a multi-ethnic working class is going to be the dominant party of the next generation. The, the Democrats have a real problem with the working class piece. And that's why this ad is so powerful. And I'll explain that connection in a second. The Republicans have had a really difficult time with the multi-ethnic part, <laughs> right? And, and, and a lot of the gains that they have been making with Hispanics recently have been despite their best efforts, not because of their best efforts. And I think what Hagar is saying is, is really important. I think people should listen, very, uh, it, it, you know, tune in here. The, the, the patriotism here, and there, there's, right. by the way, there's, there's, not, there's no flag right. waving in this ad. Right. Uh, at least visually. There's no screaming eagles and there's no flying the kind of grotesque you know, stuff you got and from none the of that. Trump's, but there's yeah. absolutely Yeah, the grotesque, right? This is this is this is a true poor aspirational working class. The the damn name of the ad he says in Spanish at the end is El Sueño Americano. It is the American dream. And this is where both parties are really missing it, because it's not just that the right has hijacked it, although they have, it's that the left has vacated it. The left, the left has given it up too, right? And the part of that is the orthodoxy 
of what, 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 what is generally referred to as people of color, which is there's an oppression. You, you, you're not – but when you believe that people are naturally oppressed in this country, and I believe that there are systemic problems that would need to be challenged, but you also have to seed the ground that, that you're not fully American at that point, right? And what does that mean? And that is not that is not the view of of two thirds of, of of Latino voters out there. That's not the message of this ad. This ad is saying it's there's no blame in this ad. There's no system is rigged in this ad. There's no you can't make it unless we make these changes or we tackle the establishment. There is none of that. This is all as long as we have belief and commitment to each other, and the moral imperative to help each other out. We have all the tools that we need, even if you are a poor Mexican kid who's the, the only son with three sisters and a single mom in a one-bedroom apartment in Chicago, Illinois, we, you can get to Harvard. You can, you can continue to serve and improve your community and elevate the lives around you. And that is messaging that is really that, – that's the messaging in the Mexican family I was raised in, by the way, in the 70s and 80s, 1970s and <laughs> 80s, not the 1870s and 80s despite what the common vernacular here on the, on the show is. But that, that is what the Democratic Party used to be. It was that working class party. And every time it moves – and this is important – they move from those roots – the Republicans are able to fill that with the grotesque, with the propaganda, with the patriotism, because there is an undying faith and commitment in the American dream, especially with the recently migrated, to what Pagar saying with, 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 with her father. There is this belief that I'd rather – I've been all over the world, but I want to I make, make my way in Greenwich, Connecticut. Right? There's something here in New York City. There's an energy in this city that is not available anywhere else in the world. That is America. And I will try and try and try and try because this is the, I want to be a part of this and I can be a part of this. That messaging is really lost in, in the modern Democratic Party right now. And this ad has the ability, yeah. I think, to reclaim that narrative and get back to that working class culture, that working class message. It, it, there's a very, it sounds like a very fine line. It sounds like I'm splitting hairs here, but there are really profound differences by, between saying I can do it or the system is preventing yeah. you from do it where you cannot do it. And there's something extraordinarily off-putting when you have, you know, Northeasterners, uh, you know, sorry, Elizabeth Warren <laughs> and Bernie Sanders, I know you're listening to the show right now, but I, it, it's extraordinarily off-putting language. language to be preached down to it's it's disempowering language to say the system is rigged you can't do it you cannot make it here unless we tear these institutions down that is not you are missing the mark with latinos by a wide margin wide margin and that's what i think that this ad recaptures it recenters and to me again this is the book i'm writing that's the hope of what Latinos, this Latino Leviathan, this electoral Leviathan can be for this democracy. It's this reinstilling of belief in institutions while others, white people, by the way, are tearing the, our institutions down because they're afraid of this demographic change. There is this new spirit emerging that is, that is central to the immigrant identity, that is central to this aspirational identity that is saying, just give me opportunity because that is more than enough. It's not just good for me economically. It's good for my soul. And that, that is such a powerful message regardless of party. But it's something the Democratic Party really needs to get back to, to finding its, its, its soul on again. Are probably why each of us had such an emotional response to this ad and probably why so many other people did as well. Let's uh, move to judicial elections. So Wednesday, the New York Times published this piece uh, about uh, one of, what they called one of the most unusual uh, and closely watched elections of 2023, which is the election of what will be a swing seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And we're just 10 weeks out from that election. There are some specific things about Wisconsin that are making the race interesting. Uh, but it's part of a larger trend in how we as Americans are viewing uh, the judicial system. The race is bringing in some attention and a lot of money. 
Uh, last year, Judge Janet Protasiewicz brought in just under a million dollars, which is more than any Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate ever has in the year before an election. The Times is also predicting the state to get flooded with money from the state's political parties and outside groups. Mitchell and Protasiewicz have both expressed their support of abortion access, which became illegal last summer under a law enacted in 1849 that's being challenged now by the Wisconsin Attorney General and is likely to be heard by the Supreme Court within the year. The two conservative candidates, uh, Jennifer Darrow and Dan Kelly, have been less forthright about how they would rule, according to the Times. It's interesting, that's the, by the way, quote, less forthright about how they would rule, quote, is how the Times is putting this, as if that would have, was a bad thing. Uh, it just stands out to me. But Kelly participated in an election integrity tour sponsored by the state Republican Party last year. Um, in 2016, Darrow said the worst U.S. Supreme Court decision in history was Lawrence v. Texas, which is the 2003 decision that struck down anti-sodomy laws. In 2020, uh, his campaign for the Supreme Court Kelly was endorsed by Donald Trump. Darrow's husband, Brian, uh, was a security official for the Trump campaign in Wisconsin. So anyway, all four of these candidates are going to square off in a nonpartisan primary on February 21st, uh, with the top two then going on to an April 4th general election. <sighs> it's not just Wisconsin. About half of the states in the United States select their Supreme Court justices in either nonpartisan or partisan elections. And it's worth noting that this Wisconsin race is nonpartisan. So there are not party labels next to their names on the ballot, but they're running as if this is a partisan race. So, Mike, I'd love you to kick this off because the last time we talked about uh, the court, the integrity of court in, in this way, you and I were just on our way out of Ukraine. Uh, we were jet-lagged, bleary-eyed, and very punchy. And we, and we and we walked all over our other guest that day on the roundup, James, who was wonderful. Um, and, and that was, that was, I a, think we were in Germany. That day. That's, we yeah. were in Germany on our way out from, yeah, that's right. And what was happening then were, were these, um, you know, protests at the homes of justices and the sort of judicial intimidation that was really, really problematic. And um, anyway, so I'd love to hear how you're thinking about in general, judicial races, it's not something that we've talked about, um, having them play out in such a partisan way. And, uh, and in particular, this trend that we're seeing of, of sort of hyper-partisanship in these races that are really supposed to be um, uh, neutral when it comes to forecasting what the court is going to do or what any judge is going to do on the bench. How do you think about this? Well, obviously, every state does it differently. In, in California, we actually have um, the governor appoint these judges, and then you stand to be confirmed by the electorate, I think, six or 12 years later. You get to serve for 12 years, and then the voters get to choose whether they want to continue uh, um, you in that capacity. And unless something extraordinarily egregious happens, nobody knows, you know, only two or 3% of the, the voting public actually knows who these judges are. And there's, there's an inherent danger, I think, that the founders, you know, when they were crafting our own form of government knew is that if you start to make the judiciary subject to the whims of the passions of the mob, then, you know, you, you, you're essentially just creating a new legislature, which is which is dangerous. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm a huge believer in, in keeping the judiciary as insular as you possibly can. But I'm also because I'm a professional political consultant and I have been complicit in this type of behavior, partisanizing absolutely damn everything. Right. So there's no judge like you're right. There's no D or R next to these judges' name, but I guarantee you they're officially endorsed by either of the major party and millions of dollars will be spent with the imprimatur of the Republican or Democratic Party, depending on who their nominee is. And so every every Wisconsinite, Wisconsinian, whatever they are, people of what the great people of Wisconsin will all know who the Republican and Democrat choices are for these offices. And and again, I'm 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 torn because uh, first I don't believe that that putting judges up for election gives them the same type of accountability as a legislator. I think there's something dangerous about that. I don't like that. There's something that just strikes me very odd and wrong about that. But I'm also very aware of the fact that in this hyper-partisan era, giving people lifetime appointees to these judicial offices, uh, you know, there, there was this assumption that I think up until recently 
that a lot of these judges were not nefarious actors, and they were definitely they were they were genuinely trying to be objective jurists. I, I don't believe that anymore. Like that's gone too. So I, I'm, you know, look the 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 unfortunate thing is is you know there's a thousand people in Wisconsin, literally a thousand people who will determine the outcome of this thing the way that it has in Wisconsin since the Scott Walker you know gubernatorial days uh Wisconsin is just it's it's just this this place and moment in time where it's so evenly divided like so evenly divided that it literally comes down to a couple of blocks outside of Madison um that that's determining the the outcomes of these races so I, you know, I'm, 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 I hate to, to, to be mealy-mouthed about an answer. You know, I'm, I'm not that way on, on virtually anything. It's just I can see both sides of this. I would, my, my, my belief, my very firm belief is we should err on the side of not having judges stand for elections, probably have a set term where they are appointed, not for life, and kind of, you know, split the baby that way and then allow it to, 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 to see if that can play out. But I just, I just really, really think that once you start putting judges up for election, you destabilize the the balance of power, and you, you're just you're creating another arm of the legislature, and that's just really, yeah, really dangerous. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's not easy, and it it does make me uncomfortable. And you know, I've been around judicial races for a while too, but um, but it seems to me that it used to be that even though in states where you had judicial elections, they there was still a sense of responsibility that the campaign felt, that the candidate felt, not to run just like all the other candidates in the field who had party identifi- identifiers next to their name. They actually felt like the job required them not to do that, right? Um, and I think this is this says more about an erosion of norms than uh, than than anything that has changed with election law, right? These these races are being run in the same way that they have before. It's just now that the norms aren't there anymore. The the, the sense of responsibility to uh, to the to the office, right? Or or the aspiration, or the even the intention. Even though you're never going to fully live up to objectivity, at least the intention to signal that you would like to be objective. Uh, or that that's a goal, a laudable goal of a judge is now gone, or at least not as pronounced. Um, certainly not in Wisconsin, but it's that norm I think that's that is eroded that that continues to erode because we don't have um, uh, we don't have candidates that are holding themselves to the same you know the same standards. So that's that's the way I'm reading this, and that makes me sad. And I think what I think I think what we're finding out. Yeah, what we're finding out, it will just it's it's more than sad, and I agree with you, it's sad, but it's dangerous, right? Because what we're realizing is for 250 years, the glue that has kept this government together is is people's better angels, is doing the right thing and at least committing to the institutions. Once people aren't committed to the institutions, once the president of the United States starts saying, Well, you know, kind of believe in elections if they come my go my way. Or once they're, you know, they lose that commitment to the peaceful transfer of power. Once they start using the White House lawn for a, a, a party convention. Once the, the 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 degradation of all of these things we once held sacred happen yeah. with no consequences. I don't know that there's anything that can yeah. protect us. Well, I don't know that there's anything right. to protect us, right? There's no constitution right. that can be written for a people that do not have that civic virtue. Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly the point. So, in the in the vein in the vein of the norms holding us together to a, to a large degree that we learned because of Trump, like things that aren't even enshrined in law. How do you read a trend like this happening in America, influencing Democrat democracies in other places and the aspiration to become a democracy uh, in places? And, and, and how do you think about democratic norms and ideals in a country uh, that is held up as the, you know, the beacon of the free world, right? Going through something like this. how is how does how is this read on the world stage, Agar? You know, Ron, it's funny. It's almost first of all like you knew what I was thinking, uh-huh. um, and as always, you ask the perfect question. The thing that and I and I am not. I don't believe I'm being alarmist about this. I want to high. I want to paint how scary what's happening in Wisconsin. This one election, what this means for our democracy in general, and then how that affects fighting for democracy abroad. So we the 
as a rule, courts in a in any government system is part of the backbone of any functioning democracy. And we and we have all we all have a short memory, but there was a time when not so long ago, I remember in 2016, 2017, President Trump comes and he starts pursuing all sorts of radical changes, one of them being the travel ban, right? The Muslim ban, travel ban. And the courts were the ones that stood in the way of that and said, no, actually, that's not constitutional. And no, that's actually not accurate. And it was state courts. And I mean, it, and, it, and I remember thinking at that time, thank God we have the courts because we need that independent check. And that's what the system, that's our system of checks and balances. That's how it was created by the founding fathers. There's a reason for it. And once you eat away at the independence of a judicial system and courts, you are really eating away at democracy because you it it lends it makes it vulnerable to abuse and it allows any one leader or one party or one movement to hijack that court in its favor the in a dictator's playbook and you see it over and over again in Russia in China in newer far right governments like Hungary Poland Israel now the first step is to take over the courts. It's the number one strategic move. Why? Because that, when when they pursue all their legislative changes or their uh, whatever, whatever, whatever it is that they want to change, the court is normally the one that can fight them and say, actually, no, that goes against our constitution. Or, no, that goes against whatever it is. But if you control the courts, if you populate it with your people or you dismantle its authorities altogether, then you, then you can effectively pursue your policies without any kind of opposition or check or balance. And so I don't want to, now yeah. that I don't want to overdramatize, sure, that's sure. not what's happening. However, that is very clearly part of a strategy of the, of the far right. We can see it happening. We've seen it happen already. Um, and so when I see something like this, all I think of as someone who tends, who works on global issues is the court under any circumstance, has to be sacred. It you, it cannot be up for election. Already we have a difficult time arguing that justices that are placed and judges that are placed, and obviously the many are appointed, that they are independent or that they are objective. But in as you said, in the effort to at least appear objective or, or try— to be, mm -hmm, right? Or aim for objectivity— then you can't have judges elected this way. You, I think the whole system of how we do this in the United States is broken. And it didn't seem as much of a risk to our democracy as it has the last several years. But it is, it is very much a risk and very hard to reverse once you go down that path. Because again, these are justices who, who, who serve, in some cases, a lifetime. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching under the radar, Mike, or over the, whatever you're, what are you thinking about when you're not writing your book? <laughs> what, do you, what do you got for us? That's all I'm thinking about. I know. Right now. I know. No, look, I, I, I'm actually, I'm actually um, following very, with great intensity, the sale of Abrams tanks by the United States to Ukraine, or at least the giving of Abrams tanks and Leopard tanks from the Germans to the uh, Ukrainian forces for a couple of reasons. And it, it's tactical, but a, a shift in tactics is really a sign that the, the war, the dynamics in the war have changed in Ukraine. Russia is on the offense. Russia is picking up more territories. These are offensive, uh, offensive, I should say, <laughs> um, you know, weaponry. The, 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 these are the types of of, of armory you use uh, for an incursion, and there there has to be some broader discussion about an incursion beyond the Donbas into Crimea. Uh, we're talking about long range weaponry, and then now the most advanced lethal ground weaponry is now going to be uh, trained. By, uh, we are going to train Ukrainian soldiers to be using. Um, are Abrams tanks and, and Leopard tanks from the Germans. And I, I, the reason why I'm watching the story is because this changes the, the, the considerations for Vladimir Putin considerably. And I have trust and confidence in our intelligence community, but I know that there's no margin for error, is once we start 
doing what I believe we need to do, which is we need to go back and and we, quote unquote, we, the, the, the Ukrainians need to liberate Crimea and return it to its rightful place, which is in Ukraine. Uh, that leaves Vladimir Putin with very, very few options. And, and a lot of, of nuclear weapons. Yeah. yeah. A lot of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah, a rogue Putin is, uh, I think, number one on the Eurasia Group's list of top threats for 2023. And this is, this is, this is, this will lead, it could potentially lead to a rogue Putin. I'm sure Hagar has plenty of thoughts on the topic. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you believe in Nostradamus. I don't really, but but this, you know, 16th century French astrologer yeah, yeah, yeah. that made predictions, apparently from the dead, um, uh, predicted that in 2023, that the, the Antichrist would, would oh. arrive. And I was like, oh. you mean Vladimir Putin? He already <laughs> arrived. Thanks. That's so enlightening. <laughs> um, uh. Yes, you don't want, a, a, I, on one hand, I believe, yes, you don't want a rogue Putin and you certainly don't want Putin backed into a corner where he ends up reacting erratically. However, I also believe that if we show that we hold back action or support for Ukraine because we are afraid of Putin, then Putin is winning. And we cannot do that. I was very I was I was happy to see the announcement on the tanks and I was happy to see Germany finally come around. And I understand why Germany, especially given its history, wanted to make sure that they coordinated this you know, this giving tanks, their tanks, the Leopold tanks are even stronger than the Abrams tanks. They're the most sophisticated. And I believe I saw that they're giving 14 of them. And so between that and the Abrams tanks and the British are giving 14 tanks as well. It's, uh, those are important in also in uh, regaining the positions on the front lines. And that's why Ukraine wants them so much. They really believe it can turn the tide of this war. And, I don't I don't want to be naive about Putin's uh, potential reactions, but I also I really uh, this is the case for any adversary. You cannot approach an adversary showing some kind of fear because they take advantage of that. Okay, what do you have for us under the radar? Or over the what, under the story radar, yeah. yes. Well, so as you know, I like to look at how all these countries are moving and how they all affect. So if so if we really go under the radar. This is going to sound niche, but it's important. Okay. okay? We love Az- it. Azerbaijan is blockading a road, and no one is paying attention to this. Very few have paid attention to this. They're blockading a road that connects Armenia to an Armenian controlled area in Azerbaijan called Nagorno Karabakh. Okay, sounds yeah. very specific. This is yeah. a corner of the world that you're probably telling me, like, what the hell is going on? No, hell? I was what in Georgia. I was in, I was in oh. Kazbegi earlier uh, last year, and we almost went over to um, Armenia. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you asked for under the radar. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. No, this is great. They are starving 120,000 ethnic Armenians who live in this corner in this in this territory and they allege that and it's protesters who are blockading this road alleged eco activists which is laughable uh protests are not allowed in most of Azerbaijan so the fact that they allow it to blockade this road is is pretty targeted the reason it's happening now is because of the Ukraine war so this is an example of what happens when things get messy when you have Russia that is now weakened power broker in the region. Russia has peacekeepers there. Those peacekeepers are not, have allegedly no control to open this corridor, although they are tasked with maintaining it uh, as open. So on one hand, you have, you have that. You see now Turkey, how Turkey weaves into this. I know you must be thinking, you know, what, so the United States has been silent on this relatively. It's just a bunch of statements that in my opinion have been very weak for something that would be so easy to fix. Mm. This is a blockade. It's not a war. It's very easy to end this. We give military aid to Azerbaijan in the hundreds of millions of dollars. We could very easily dangle that and say, we're going to halt this if you don't behave properly because it is an effort. Oh, we already give that aid to them. Yeah, we have been since 2002. Oh, yes. wow. <laughs> yes. And it is approved every single year. There are senators yeah. um, who who hate this aid and who every year call uh, call for it to end. But but every year the president allows it, uh, allows it to go through. It's to beef up the border between Azerbaijan and Iran. Uh. And, but w- so what, why is the U.S.? Not saying anything about yeah. it. Now, there could be many reasons. Sure. Partly, Russia used to handle this corner of the world. Mm. Um, secondly, they're trying to do a delicate dance with Turkey right now. They want Turkey to allow Finland and Sweden uh, into NATO. Right. NATO expansion is critical right. in general as a message, as a message to Putin in, during a war yeah. in Ukraine. For all these reasons, Turkey supports Azerbaijan. Yeah. All of this to tell you that when these 
it's it's fascinating to me. First of all, it's painful to watch yeah. what's happening and not enough, not anything being done to change it when it could be so easy. Um, but also to show how one one development, one a yeah. war, a conflict, any kind of development ends up having these ripple effects yeah. that are wide and damaging. And um, and 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 I really I, I I hate when I see the U.S. government behave like it has its arms tied behind its back because it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, a, there's a tennis player, I think, who's trying to draw attention to this. He's in the semifinals of the right. Australian Open. That's right. I don't know. I don't know the name. Yes. But, yes. Because of the K. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's a, a really good story. Um, at some point we should, I, I got to debrief with you about Kazbegi and Georgia. Yes, and the Stalin, I love that. There's a Stalin museum in Georgia, which is just a weird, weird mm. thing. So anyway. All of this is because of Stalin, by the way. All oh, of yeah. this stems yeah, from yeah. Stalin, who yeah. gave this area, this land, to Azerbaijan. Although ethnic oh. Armenians have lived there for centuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we could geek out on this all day. <laughs> oh, man. All right, gang. Uh, let's flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to talk about this Politico magazine piece about blowing up the U.S. climate politics. And I mean, it, the, the, the magazine piece itself um, is uh, it's kind of it's kind of nuts, but it's the topic and their approach. Like, I want to talk about this with you. Um, before we do, let's uh, tell everybody where you can be found on the Internet. Hagar, where should they find you? Yes, thank you. Uh, so it's called Oh My World is my media brand, my show. It's a weekly show on YouTube uh, where I cover the top world news stories in a fun and easy and satirical way in 10 minutes. That means I'm often dressed up like uh, old men with a wig and a bad accent. Um, but that makes it fun and digestible. And so you can find it, Oh My World with Hagar Shamali on YouTube. And obviously you can find at Oh My World Show on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, where you'll see snippets from the show and uh, where you'll digest just all this complicated stuff, but in a really funny way. Love it. Thank you. Mike, are you currently taking uh, visitors in your uh, book bunker? Do you want to be found these days? I'm, I, I, no, I'm in kind of deep <laughs> isolation. I'm kind of like, I, everything I learned in COVID, I'm like putting to great effect right now. And I'm just literally <laughs> staring at a screen for eight to 10 hours a day. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in isolation for a little bit. I'll be hide, in hiding probably through the end of April, but Okay. Around May, there will be a new emergence and something different will happen. Oh. But in the interim, if you want to hit, find me, hit me up on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Oh, you gave up on Mastodon, huh? <laughs> no, no, I did not. Oh, okay. Actually, that's where I feel safest. I just don't check Twitter. So that's why I was pushing people there. <laughs> that's part of my isolation strategy. You can reach me on Mastodon at Mike Madrid at C.IM. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.